Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. All right, welcome to the nose. That means it's the end of the week, but it's the beginning of a conversation about culture. We've got great people in the studio for you today. Parker, who, graphic designer and musician, her solo album is Late Reply. It is not produced by Jim Chapdelaine, but almost everything else is produced by Jim Chapdelaine, musician, producer, composer, uh, cancer advocate, and as it turns out, uh, Sapiens, uh, part of the Sapiens cultural elite, uh, which is kind of nationalist. Sapiens nationalist. (laughs) Gene Seymour. A cultural critic, jazz uh, writer, jazz aficionado, other kind of writer, a contributor to CNN Opinion, the Baffler Book Forum, The Nation. You're getting the drift of things. So uh, in the second segment of the show today, we're going to talk about the movie, A Wrinkle in Time. Uh, But here at the beginning, we are going to talk about and something that I, I would have to acknowledge, maybe a lot of public radio listeners don't pay a tremendous amount of attention to. And parenthetically, neither do we uh, until now, uh, and that is The Bachelor. We're also going to talk about a project uh, by a man, a man of some resources, who decided he would cut himself off from all news having to do with politics, government, like anything having to do with the fact that we live in the Trump presidency, and he has been very successful at doing that. It's, he calls it the blockade. But first, but first, The Bachelor season finale uh, took place uh, on March 5th. Um, A 27-year-old publicist named Becca uh, thought she was – well, I mean, in fact, she was proposed to uh, by a 37-year-old race car driver named Ari. Uh, And then three hours later, he dumped and publicly humiliated her during a happy couple weekend in Los Angeles in front of the cameras uh, in favor of the – what had been the second-place finisher, finisher, a 25-year-old person named Lauren. So – and here's a little bit (laughs) – (laughs) <laughs> I can't believe we're going to play this. But here's a little do bit. This. Uh, A1, Lydia, this is a little bit of what that sounded like. Words to me? No, it was, and that was a difficulty I had with her, is that there was that strong affection towards her. And yes, logically, we made more sense. I understand that. Oh, my Um, All right. So um, I I just want to say that I knew that this had happened for one reason, uh, which was that that happened on March 5th, I believe on March 6th. I happened to be teaching a a poli-sci course where we look a lot at media. And one of the things we were doing in class that day is looking at the main pages of a lot of different news organizations, everything from CBS to The New Republic to BuzzFeed to Slate to NPR to – anyway, when we get to BuzzFeed, which does have a lot of really excellent political reporting and investigative reporting, um, mostly (laughs) – 
there was a lot of coverage of The Bachelor. <laughs> and we knew, some of the people in class, I think, already knew what had happened. I knew at least something really horrible had happened. Since then, there's been a cascade of articles uh, criticizing ABC and this particular uh, uh, production uh, for the uh, almost kind of abusive, unedited treatment uh, of this woman who suffered rejection with a nation watching. Uh, and no place to hide. Uh, it has become such a pervasive meme that Saturday Night Live last Saturday devoted its cold opening to it, substituting Robert Mueller, uh, a.k.a. Kate McKinnon, uh, uh, for Ari the male. Uh, and the bad news in this case was that he might, might not be able to indict Donald Trump, uh, which caused uh, Cecily Strong to weep very much like the rejected Becca. So, um, so yeah, I don't know. <laughs> so Parker, we're 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 in kind of uncharted waters for public radio. On the other hand, it could be argued that we live in a reality television world these days. Our president comes to us from reality television, and he has made America as much like reality television as he possibly could. I mean, first of all, does this strike you uh, as as the abuse of this woman? Bearing in mind that you know people know what they sign up for. Oh Lord. Well, <laughs> I have a very hard time even giving attention to this topic because I'm, I'm very cynical about reality TV. Um, How dare you? Uh, oh, no. Well, the basis of these types of reality-based reality shows is that you, you twist what is true and then exaggerate it mm -hmm. greatly so that it's more interesting. That said, who knows? Uh, who knows how much of this was staged? From what I understand, um, Becca is going to be the next contestant for the the Bachelorette, so she's signing up for more of this uh, public uh, public exposure. Which well, she will do the rejecting this time. Uh. Oh, it's reject she will. Does, yeah. it, does it make it any better? Is my question. Yeah. No, it's karma though. It's some, some kind of karmic tilt in the other direction, right? I just think it's a it's a strange. It's a strange phenomenon to watch how many people are are taking someone else's misery, shrewd and fraud, if you want to call it that, so personally. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I want to talk some more about that. But I mean, uh, you know, Jim, to, to to Parker's point, we can say, I mean, people are increasingly hip to the idea that not, there's an awful lot of manipulation that goes on in quote unquote reality TV. Much was made uh, on, in this particular uh, episode of The Bachelor that it was going to be uh, unedited, uh, pure, raw footage for 25 minutes or something of this incredible. <laughs> The awkward and agonizing process of kind of switching uh, partners and breaking the news to poor Becca. Um, and I'm wondering if maybe that's part of it, too, that they have to kind of up the impact a little bit. It's like, OK, you've kind of figured out maybe that a lot of Honey Boo Boo wasn't all that real. So now we have to give you like harder uncut stuff. I don't know. I, I think, you know, in the clip you played, there was some uncomfortable um, um, talking and then there was a really uncomfortable silence and mm -hmm. that skeeved me out and that's how I feel about talking about this <laughs> is that, that uncomfortable silence um, well said. because because the way this ultimately ends if, it, if they allow it to keep going is going to be a human sacrifice there's like you're right they have to keep getting up bumping it up and bumping it up so more pain more suffering more ratings um, going back all the way back to the beginning of reality TV, which was the Loud family, right? Mm -hmm. As it turns out, that was highly manipulated. So there's never been real reality TV. Um, even uh, uh, 
what was the Walt Disney show with the the animals? And it turns out they were staked oh, to life. a tree, oh, oh, right? True life. Oh, True Life Adventures. Thank you, yeah. True Life, right? He so said, that was he reality said, TV he for said animals. Great irony, right? Yeah. So I don't know if it's ever been real. I, I mean, I know this was the only show, along with the Kardashians, that I attempted to uh, impart parental protection on our TV system uh, unsuccessfully. So, so this is what you were saying, your daughter. Somehow. My daughter and my wife would watch this <laughs> oh, together. <laughs> and then I would go in and hate watch it until they threw me out of the room. Right. Like, <laughs> if you can't watch this, then get out. But, but I wouldn't. Sometimes I'd just come in and pea shoot. This is so. probably a good time for me to admit that um, all of the birds on Bird Note are given drugs to make them more cooperative. So um, <laughs> anyway, uh, so Gene, what's your And favorite? Honey Boo Boo Isn't Real? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, actually, the precursors to this, really, I mean, literally, not, not just the Disney films, but um, I, I'm showing my age once again, but there was a TV show that I used to catch the end of when I came home from school called Queen for a Day. Oh, yeah. yeah. Who will it be? Yeah, and, and, they, and they have these people with just really hard luck stories. And I remember once that after a woman didn't win, what she, what she, she broke down on air just in, in the most ugly way. And I, 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 I haven't watched much television most of my life. This, this was the most intimate thing I had seen on a black and white screen. And I'm thinking, is this what is this what's supposed to happen? And I still have that feeling when I when I hear, watch, see things like this come up. Is this what this is? This is what's supposed to happen. Am I am I supposed to sit there like a coliseum audience watching these very intimate things, these disappointments in front of me? I I I don't know. I don't know what to do. Someone is because people are watching, right? Yeah. What, uh, didn't you point out the ratings for this were pretty high? Well, the ratings for I mean a lot of things like this are high. They actually have been struggling this particular series in the era of Me Too. Uh, I think uh, maybe doesn't play quite as well. So they I think had a shown a fourteen percent decline this season uh, in their overall ratings. But that's still six point two. Because their hashtag people. is No Me, No Me. <laughs> that's right, Me, Me, not him. Uh, not her. So, um, but uh, and the ratings did pop back up as a result of the tremendous amount of publicity that uh, accompanied this uh, agonizing uh, finale. But Parker, you know, I want to go back to something that you said. You were talking about how th- that people do watch. They watch, as you said, maybe f- for the sake of Schadenfreude, maybe for something else. And, and state of mind is a really interesting question to me because I I think that ultimately the you know, of the 6.2 million people who watch, some of them are probably chapdelaines who come in there to uh, say snarky things to the TV screen. And exactly one third in my house. <laughs> make, a, make a nuisance of themselves. But a lot of people, I mean, I assume when you when you decide to watch this, and I know people who watch this who are not stupid people, who are not, I, I assume when you watch it, there's a kind of buy-in that you do, right? Like, I am going to take the feelings of these people somewhat seriously. Uh, otherwise, I, I wouldn't understand even what anybody's motivation would be. That's true. Um, it's, it seems to me there's always a range of people who, who buy into TV shows, as you're saying. You know, there's people who perhaps are a bit more like Jim who are just going to make fun of it to till the day because they know it's ridiculous. Up. So there's one end of the spectrum, and the other end is perhaps someone who really uh, takes it as gospel and maybe reads gossip newspapers and takes it for real facts. So there's a there's a range of uh, of belief, um, but yes, there's buying in all of them. And uh, 
I think it's just really strange. And actually, something that you mentioned before, Jean, is really an interesting observation when you were talking about that show where you, you saw someone break down for real and it made you a bit uncomfortable, maybe really uncomfortable. It seems like the, the current thing that's going on with The Bachelors, nationally, everyone's having that moment. You're not really supposed to see reality on reality TV. And then when you do see it, oh, my God, humanity is so ugly and hurtful. So it's, it's ironic that they're really getting what they're hoping for, and it's awful. Um, I, I am uh, being asked by uh, one of the producers, Betsy Kaplan, to point out that Ari, uh, who did all these uh, uh, manipulative and dreadful things, or not manipulative things, was, uh, had been on The Bachelorette. There's sort of a circle of life here. So Ari had been rejected on The Bachelorette. Now he, yeah, now he gets to be The Bachelor, and now Becca, who his heart was broken here, I mean, there is a way, uh, you know, in which I think these things are also watched by a young audience, Gene. Yeah. Their target yes, demo is young. And, and it's a young audience that maybe is trying to sort out things. I mean, what Ari is doing is something that we all know at least one or two people who have done this. I mean, mm -hmm. they haven't done it on television. Yeah. But that you have, have realized that they picked the wrong person <clears throat> and have realized in time to make that correction that they've picked the wrong person. Almost everybody I know who's pulled in Ari whether it's a man or a woman, in, in every case, both people are incredibly happy that happened. That is, the person more or less left at the altar, so to speak, uh, and the person who did the leaving, both 10 years later see it as the best thing that could have possibly ever happened. And maybe for young people, it's, you know, they're looking at that thinking, well, uh, I, maybe that's good learning to just watch this happen or something. I, I don't know. I think that I, I, uh, watching today's generation react to different things has been kind of a my own spectator sport, frankly, in terms of just gauging what it is they get out of this. I mean, um, I think that the, the source of some of, 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 the, uh, of the addiction to this is, is projecting themselves into this, into this situation. And so much about the transaction Romantic, what we mean by romantic transactions have gone through such sea changes, plural, in the last 30 or 40 years that I'm not sure that those people, and I, I have no idea, I have no statistics, I have no data to back me up, that some of these people in their 20s see this as a kind of forum or a kind of a, 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 a platform for testing their own transactions maybe not in this grand way but anyway look looking for something to borrow to project that that's what people get from popular entertainment right well this fits culture. into yeah, yeah. Fit, Jim, this yeah. fits into your whole homo sapiens yeah. theory that yeah. we that we are an animal that tells each other stories that are presumably instructive exchanges and and that gossip is apparently essential to uh, homo sapiens uh, being the sole uh, primal species in the last 10,000 years. So I think we've just elevated the, uh, the, uh, the Bachelor to some sort of place where <laughs> Sir Richard Attenborough should right. be the host next year. Yes, but you're also, but you're also but in that process, you're also bringing down Homo sapiens in terms of well, their, if you read, oh, no. If you read the book Sapiens, they're down. Yeah, we're, we're bringing, down. We're, we're bringing we're ourselves down. I, I, I don't yeah. think you can blame ABC for that. Yeah. Uh, although maybe you can. I, I, I just do want to say, I think one thing that we are, we're going to transition here. One thing that I think has become an interesting 
middle ground on television is just that notion of emotion. Like, you know, when you see emotions, what are you actually seeing when you see them on reality television? Are they manipulated? And as I pointed out to you guys in an email, in my house, one of the kind of argumentative points, there's another person in the house who really, really intensely resents, despises, and has disdain for The Talking Dead, which is a conversation show that comes on right after each episode of The Walking Dead. It's hosted by Chris Hardwick. And, and recently, I won't say who, in case you haven't caught up with it, but somebody died on The Walking Dead. And as they cut to this this after show where for an hour they talk about all this kind of stuff, Chris Hardwick has was there with a tear-streaked face <laughs> crying because person X had been killed in the zombie apocalypse. And <laughs> Shockingly, someone dies. The other person in the room got really angry <laughs> about this notion. See, so, I, fi- I find that part interesting, that yeah, somebody got mad at that person for doing that. At Chris Hardwick for crying, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a part, a part of a larger problem. Yeah. Larger, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, anyway, we have to switch gears here. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit now about somebody who basically uh, tried to avoid, if not exactly what we just talking about at least some of the uh, impacts of culture in 2018. His name is Eric Hagerman. Uh, he tried to arrange, well, he did arrange his life uh, after Donald Trump won the election to avoid learning anything about what happened to America or in America after November 8th, 2016. Uh, he says it was draconian and complete. It's not like I wanted to just steer away from Trump or shift the conversation. It was like I was a vampire and any photon of Trump would turn me to dust. Huh. And he thinks he's special. Um, so... Um, <laughs> So what he's done is just cut him off from everything. He lives on a pig farm uh, in Ohio. He's got uh, enough money so that uh, he can arrange things. He's a sort of a tech uh, valley um, rich guy. Uh, and he's uh, able to arrange his life uh, so that people have to do what he tells them to. And what he tells them to do, including his mother and his sister and people like that, is never talk to him about any of this. And he's sure. invented something too, right? He's actually inventing stuff. He's actually yeah. conceiving things. You know, right. Like, he's, he's doing some kind of weird sculptures, and yeah. he's also creating this yeah. thing called the lake, yeah. Yeah. which I don't entirely understand. Yeah. Um, so, um, so Parker, I don't know. Did you have any trace of envy of this man that he is able to? He doesn't have to sort of live with the daily realities of. He never has to hear Jared. Oh no! I, actually, my eyes couldn't roll back fast enough. I mean, it was kind of like you said. Yeah, everyone wishes they could turn off the news sometimes, and uh, good for him that he's got enough money to do what he wants. I think it's a it's an interesting experiment, um, but it struck me as a little ironic because back I don't know back in the day, I guess in the most general way, people were were starved for news. They wanted to know what was happening in culture. They wanted to connect. They wanted to. Uh, be more involved and know things, and now you're now to have the privilege to not do that is just a little, a little ironic, <laughs> a little strange maybe. It is, but uh, on the other hand, I don't know. There, there is maybe a serenity that he's achieving that the rest of us don't have. And as somebody who's, you know, some of your life is uh, devoted to, devoted to being creative, it might be nice to get some of the, no- the background noise out of your head, right? That's very true. I mean, I know a lot of people, and and I myself similarly kind of backed off of social media and certain sources after the election just because the climate was so hostile. So everyone needed a little break. Yeah. Um, and I think it's a very natural kind of response to things when you get overwhelmed. Uh, that said, I'm more interested in the part of the story where you know, his family and his friends agree to abstain from talking about news. 
that part's interesting to me because that's that's like a I don't know imposing your will upon others in a way that is a little bit questionable and and dare I say maybe even a little selfish I think um, they do mention at one point that someone brought up the Experian hack and so they mentioned that to him for his own safety right what about other things if there was a wildfire going through his area would he not want to hear about that zombie apocalypse. Mm-hmm. You know, we d- actually did a show with a guy. We, it was a show on, on political stress. And we part of the show, the opening part of the show, was a guy who um, had uh, been opposed to Trump all the way through the campaign. Uh, and then just a few days after the election, partly he thinks, I think not unreasonably, occasioned by the incredible stress of realizing how the election came out, he had a hor- horrible cardiac uh, incident, which uh, put him into briefly or for a while into a coma. When he came out of the coma, he didn't know anymore that Donald Trump had been elected president, which meant that ironically he had to go through it all over again. Uh, <laughs> he had to be told about it. You, know, you can sort of see this setting up a really unfortunate uh, chain here. I mean, Jim, there is some part of me anyway when I was reading about this and him and his lake that he goes out to and he looks at his lake and he's building some kind of very special barn that's going to be some kind of cultural. I don't know. I was thinking, eh, I want that a little bit anyway. Sure, but you want it when you want it, right? You don't want to live in this self-imposed information island. Um, if, if If The Bachelor felt a little bit like we were punching down, which it kind of did, this is a little bit punching up because this guy is is a rich white guy who has basically decided he will be the f- irritating family pet. That, that <laughs> you know, you can't say certain things. You got to watch how you do. No, he's allergic to this. And, and everybody knows somebody a little like that. But this guy's taken it to the ultimate level where he's built this giant wall around himself. It, it is to me, his life seems sort of miserable. Well, the gene, he already knows that he's an annoying family pet to the degree, right? He says that he has to give all of his money away at the end of his life or something. He's building oh. this this thing where the land can never be sold, and it's, I, I don't quite entirely but understand. The fact what that we're talking is. about him at all suggests <laughs> that he has, is reveling in this. I yeah. mean, he, he allowed this story to be written about. He even, he probably just took him on a guided tour of my bubble. You don't but know, he you couldn't don't, read the story, right? Yeah, right. Well, yeah. Uh, allegedly. Ah. Which, to be, uh, which, redacted. Which, which brings me to the aspect of, I mean, I'm going to make a, a little bit of a parsing here as to what we're avoiding. He seems to be avoiding the what of what's happened, okay? What drives me batty and what has been driving me batty for the last, oh, three or four years, maybe longer, is not, is not just the what of what's been happening, but the way people have been delivering the news about what's been happening. And that kind of parsing is what seemed to be missing from this particular thing. Is he running away merely from the what of what has happened? Or is he really turning his back on the manner in which these things have been disseminated? I I, I guess the way the article presents itself, which I guess is maybe is part of the problem. Yeah, I think so too. uh, Yeah. um, You know, it's that it's just that that event alone just close the iron door behind him. But my inclinations, and, and, and I, I think of my own, of what's been making me uptight and why I've restricted my, news, my own news diet, is not because so much of the what, but because of the way people have been talking, disseminating, reporting, or not reporting. Those are the things that, that I feel I want to get away from sometimes. 
or at least find something that 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 that, that does it differently. Um, and I, I wonder just whether he ran away from it without thinking first that maybe there's just another place you should go to hear all this. I don't know. I mean, that that that, that was my. It sort of reaction. fits this uh, this sort of stereotype of the ultimate sort of triggered white snowflake liberal guy that that has the means to to create a bubble like that. I guess, although I, like I will say, Parker, I was at um, a dinner party in, in New Haven uh, where the first hour and a half or two hours was spent just sort of with the usual garment rending over Trump, uh, Trump, and Trump, and Trump this and Trump that, and you know, was Mueller going to get him? And, and, and at a certain point, I, in this very wooden and obvious way, said, "Hey, who do you think is going to win the Oscars this year?" You know, and just like just did anything I could to shift this conversation. I mean, there's a way in which a, a certain subgroups of society. Probably the ones that this guy would be at if he weren't on his pig farm, if he were hanging out in the Bay Area talking to people, they'd just be talking about this stuff all the time. Um, I mean, there, you do sometimes have to make an effort to have life be about something else. It's true. So you're talking about liberals annoying the hell out of other liberals. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You think talking about the Oscars helps? I mean. Well, uh, yes, I do. It's like a different topic. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, did, did, Parker, did you. I had a little trouble believing this at first. And that probably speaks to my own condition. Uh, and also the fact that Farad Manju, who was a guy who uh, writes a lot about technology, uh, announced that he had, uh, as a journalistic project, absented himself from Twitter. And that turned out not to be true. Yeah. <laughs> they were able actually to tra- track his Twitter habits. And he hadn't, he hadn't really accomplished that at all, at least not for any significant length of time. But I, my, my initial reaction was, nah, you know, he's saying that. But somehow or other, he's getting all this stuff. I have that I have that feeling too. I mean, the New York Times has does these profiles on people every once in a while and you know, they're the the couple that didn't throw away trash for an entire year to, you know, find out how much trash a, a person really accumulates, someone who only eats raw meat for x amount of, you know. Uh, so everyone's just trying to prove something to the public and I don't know make themselves feel special, I suppose. So how did the writer find out about this guy? It's a fairly good question. Tweet, I, he tweeted. Yeah, <laughs> he, he tweeted. No. He he's got probably everybody he knows tweets about him. Exactly. Yeah. Well, exactly. I mean, this, he's not running from anything, really. I mean, you know, he's just made himself the center of gravity. For right. This. Yes. Yeah. Because yes. we're talking about him. Yeah. The, I, I will say the piece is really interesting to read. Anyway, whether you decide you believe it or not, or whether you decide this guy is just hopelessly precious or not. Um, this guy, the piece is interesting, and it does get you thinking anyway about your own habits. Did and it what end it abruptly, or could I just not get to the? No, I think like it, it ended. I like, think it did end a little abruptly. Uh, and he had a lake. See ya. Yeah, I, I, I uh, couldn't yeah. get the. Couldn't quite. Are we done, or can I not get to the? They're talking next about part? him maybe starting a movement of some kind, or some right. sort of. Well, that's going to be hard without any sort of <laughs> right. people. That's right. He's not going to be, yes. going to be able to network at hermits, all. Hermits don't have mass movements right. by right. nature. Yeah. But certainly, yes, those descriptions about when he visits his brother, I think it is, in the Bay Area, you know, his family knows not to talk to him about this. But everybody else, anybody who might be coming into the house has to be cautioned about what the rules are. I'm sure and a twin brother. That's, twin that's brother interesting, yeah. too. Uh, park it all with your twin. That's what I say. All right. We're going to take a little break. We're going to come back. We've got to talk about a wrinkle in time.
And we are indeed back to the news. Uh, joining us in the studio, Jim Chapdelaine, musician, producer, composer, uh, guitar hero, Gene Seymour, cultural cultural critic and writer, jazz aficionado, uh, and Parker Who, not to be confused with Mrs. Who uh, from A Wrinkle in Time, Parker Who, graphic designer and musician. Her solo album is Late Reply. Uh, so, speaking of Mrs. Who, uh, we did go, except for Parker, who didn't make it. Uh, boy, did you miss a treat, too. Um, but we did go to see um, A Wrinkle in Time uh, this week, uh, and uh, we are gonna, we now, we're now going to introduce you to these three celestial guides uh, who play a major role in the movie, Mrs. What's-It, Mrs. Who, uh, Mrs. Witch. They are Reese Witherspoon, Mindy Kaling, and Oprah Winfrey. They are here to help uh, a plucky young heroine named Meg and her younger brother, Charles Wallace, and a, a sort of hapless, a random white boyfriend named Calvin, uh, be tussered through a wrinkling of time and space. Let's hear a little bit from the movie. We're fading. Can't we at least leave them with something to help them? Yes. Gifts. I love gifts. They work well in a moment of peril. For they see that which is unfolded, not gone, just unfolded. Meg, trouble problematic Meg. To you, I give the gift of your faults. You're welcome. You do know my faults are the bad qualities, right? Are they really? Hmm. Well, then you're all set. My gift is my command. Stay together. Don't let anyone separate you. It is no spoiler to tell you that they don't do that. Like, they don't ever do that as far as I can tell. And that's Oprah telling them to do that. And they still don't face it. I think they right away separate. Right? And I am yeah, they do. I was so, so dying to scream in the theater. And you get a microwave. Oh, and you man. get a microwave. I'm just going to break out my set of keys for the Hyundai that yeah. I won. You get See. a Tesseract. And you yeah. get a Tesseract. So, um, Gene, let, let's talk about this a little bit. Uh, yep. This is a movie that, I mean, in a way, movies these days, first weekends are so important, so expectations become so important. And this movie has been whacked like a shuttlecock back and forth across the net uh, of expectations. Uh, uh, maybe you can describe the arcs in the air that you've seen. Oh, boy. Well... For starters, I guess, I, I, and I hate to begin like this, but I think that's that that's where most of this these expectations started. Uh, Anna DuVernay, an African American woman director who uh, who has become uh, both blessed and freighted with many expectations since making the movie Selma uh, a few years ago, that was not nominated for Best Picture and was and people were angry about that, and who made a documentary a year later called The 13th uh, about the so-called New Jim Crow in prisons, uh, which did not win and that made other people angry. And uh, she was given this franchise, this, this fantasy franchise, uh, this, this, uh, this novel that has been beloved by several generations of, uh, of teens and preteens. Uh, uh, and uh, and Disney money and Disney money, lots and lots of Disney money, um, because it comes on the heels, close on the heels of another Disney fantasy of note, 
that came out uh, before, also directed by an African-American called The Black Panther, or just Black Panther, uh, people have been making these kind of absurd connections that somehow, how, however well this did, would somehow be reflected or reflect upon how well Black Panther did, which I think is absurd. However, I am going to make a direct comparison between the two directors. Ryan Coogler, uh, who also directed Fruitville Station and Creed, about which we all loved very much, is a natural storyteller. You can tell that in his interviews, and you can tell that by the way he puts his movies together, and they transmit and then they transform you and transport you into the middle of the story. Anna DuVernay, who got her start as a movie publicist, is a natural promoter, and I think that what this movie does from the beginning and almost to the very end is perpetuate its own promotion. The, the movie starts, I mean, I, I guess we've all been, you, you, those of us have been in the screening, starts with a message from the director. Now, I've never heard of that unless we're talking about somebody feeling the need to present a lost classic from, from decades ago. But here she is telling you what you're going to see and how you're going to feel at the end of it. And I thought, uh-oh. And, um, <laughs> and uh, you know, I hate to be too, and I, I don't want to be too hard on it, um, one of my former colleagues, movie critic colleagues, says that it's almost the platonic ideal of a mixed bag, and that's what that's what I felt about the movie. Pretty much, it had it had moments that 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 were like you know fingernails on chalkboard, but there were moments where I had to admit uh, some of my qualms about Anna DuVernay's filmmaking chops uh, were beginning to be not as um, as strident or as strong as they were beforehand, but. Anyway, that's my general overview of uh, right. what's So we strive for you know diverse opinions as possible here. It's always good if we can have an argument about it. Unfortunately, I think the person who likes this movie the best right now is Parker, who hasn't seen it. Uh, <laughs> because the, anybody else who's seen it uh, has. I'm going to get to Parker, though, because I, I think. But, but Jim, I know just from your uh, somewhat cranky emails uh, immediately after having seen the movie um, that you want that time of your life back. But I, you know, I do. But I, I will say that. If I was a 12-year-old girl, I'm clearly not. But you, you have a uh, but girl I, who was once for, 12. I, but, and had I, I was saying to my wife, had I seen it with my daughter when she was about 12, I bet we both would have been crying. And for different reasons than I was crying <laughs> yesterday. Um, it, it, so I, I think you should start with what's good about this movie. It's sort mm -hmm. of visually compelling and mm -hmm. very Disney-like. It's more, uh, it seems more magical than it is scientific. Um, it's the most politically correct casting that I've ever seen in my life. But, but I think that's good. And I, and I also think that, um, wait, there was something else that I, I thought was good about it. Uh, oh, oh, it, then I, then I, it, what happened is once Oprah shows up, I got, in, it, it put me in the Tesseract, or the, is that what it is? The Tesseract, 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 okay. And, and I was transported to the self-help aisle at Barnes & Noble where I remained for about an hour with people throwing platitudes at me. So there's that, but I am not the demographic. So if you are in that demographic, either a parent or a child, child, I have a head cold, um, I think it would be a good movie to see. I think it would be a fun movie to see. Well, yeah, and I should say that Kalila Brown-Dean, who's a major contributor to another one of our shows, The Wheelhouse, did see this with a bunch of young women. I think a bunch of young women, many of them of color, who were sniffling and making all the appropriate uh, sinus noises uh, uh, that go along with seeing a movie that's either either a movie that's very moving, 
to you or getting broken up with on The Bachelor, either way. But um, <laughs> but Parker, one thing that we can talk about here a little bit is, uh, and it, it even occasioned a piece in The Onion, uh, a, a comedic piece about sort of white male critics who uh, are nervous because they didn't like the movie. On the other hand, they don't want to come out against a, a movie by, first of all, there have been few and far between women directors, uh, fewer and further uh, between women directors of color, uh, and also a paucity uh, of cultural entertainment of this kind that, that does have the kind of racial mix that Jim is saying is, is laudable. Uh, so you hate to sort of step back from that and, and say, well, on the other hand, this was like a really bad movie. Um, on the other hand, I don't think we want to set up a cultural system where we judge movies by these other standards. Or maybe we do. Maybe we do at least want a factor for that. A very similar thing happened back with the release of um, the Ghostbusters with the all-female cast. Yeah, I remember reading some reviews, um, and, and generally it was reviewed poorly because it was, I guess, just not a very well-told story. It just wasn't done very well. But there was a reaction from white male critics saying, well, I'm not allowed to say that I don't like this movie <laughs> because it's all female, so clearly I'm misogynistic. You know, and that that to me just says that Movies, along with a lot of other things now, are very politicized. I don't, we are not, we're not in the type of climate where most people are judging movies or music from a, was this a, a well-done piece of art? Was this a, a good story, a, a good use of the medium? No one's really asking that question now. It's, oh, well, uh, a very diverse cast. Make sure to cast all the right people and all the right genders and all the right sizes and shapes. You know, it, it becomes a whole different thing. Which, for for better or worse, should it be this way? Should it not be this way? I guess it really depends. I know that people who are very into the film, the the purism of film and the creation and and all of that sort of thing, don't like where it's at right now. Right. I mean, well, I mean, Gene, you and I, I, I don't, maybe we won't uh, say his name, but G, you and I were both on the Facebook thread of a critic that we both know very well, who was sort of angsting semi-publicly on Facebook saying... I think I read that, too. How, how am I going to write about this? A, because, yeah. a, he always does that, yeah. you know, <laughs> and B, um, look, I think, I honestly believe that when Anna DuVernay decided to do this, she was trying to make it as much of a no big deal aspect of the movie as possible. She just said, yeah, white scientist, married to a black woman, has a mixed race family. Okay, that's just the way life is now. And I took that in the spirit for which she was attempting to do it. Now, the fact that others insist on, on I think the avoidance or the kind of couching your words and being very careful so as not to seem against what the movie is depicting, uh, is, I'm sorry to say, part of the problem, I think. You know, maybe if it yeah. was any of these movies we're talking about, if a movie is just a great movie, you don't tend to politicize it. You're, yeah. It, it's, you talk about a movie the way we are because it's not a great – it didn't strike me as a great movie. No. It might be a great movie if you're, again, in the demographic for which it's intended. Yeah. But, but that's why you find these sort of peripheral discussions taking place that Parker is talking about, I think. Oh, well, I also think one of the problems here is that there are a lot of mother-daughter combinations who are headed off to the movies, either last week and this week, and to see this movie because the book has been very important to them. But this is movie departs in significant ways from the book. They might be the most obvious – friendly audience, although I wonder how friendly they're going to be. I just quickly want to say that one of the, 
One of the movies that I've had a very ambivalent relationship over time, mainly because I was a very fearful child, uh, is The Wizard of Oz. To this day, I will urinate submissively if there's a flying monkey in the room. I just like <laughs> so cannot. I really that. didn't need to know that. Yeah, cannot, Thank you. Cannot <laughs> handle it to this day. Yeah. But I was watching this movie, which resembles uh, The Wizard of Oz in certain ways. Um, well, it does. It's about a plucky young woman on a quest. The males around her are kind of defective. You yeah. know, uh, yeah. they're, they're sort of, you know, useless uh, or, or semi-useless uh, in a way that she is not. Uh, and uh, and she's on a quest. And, and that the other women are not also. No, right. yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, exactly. So the women are much more effective than the men. Uh, but, you know, in, in ways that Gene is talking about, I mean – the, the storytelling in The Wizard of Oz, the stakes are high in every scene. Right. It's not just the stakes are high she wants to get back to Kansas. The stakes are high. Is she going to get through the poppies? Is one of her friends going to get killed? What's, what's the witch going to do next? What are the monkeys going to do next? Are the Oreo guys going to see them? You're, you're just like nervous all the time. Yeah, no, I, I totally get that, although there is no piddle by my seat. And, I, and, uh, and I'm sorry. I, 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 need problem, a, I, I needed more of that kind of right. audacity in this. Stake, I, higher yeah, stakes. Uh, well, even the, the audacity of the movie making. That, 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 right. That's what was missing. All right. We have to take a break right now just so this uh, fine panel will have a chance to recommend things to you. Uh, and so let's do that. Let's take that break. We'll come back and we will, or they will, recommend things. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan with help from me, Kyone Wolf, and Lydia Brown. The part of Bill Curry was played by Oprah. On Monday, Scramble, the return of the phone booth. And now, back to Colin. And on uh, Monday, we're going to do the scramble. Uh, it's our, well, I mean, there's sort of a lot going on right now just within the Trump administration, but we have some other topics too, including uh, perhaps the renewal of phone booths. Uh, and uh, also um, some unusual animal rights legislation that is only sort of animal rights thinking that's only possible in Connecticut because of a law we have that other people do not have. Parker, just before we get to the recommendations, I have to say you actually watched the somewhat infamous TV adaptation that was done quite a few years ago of Wrinkle in Time, right? I did. I didn't know that it was infamous, though. Well, it's infamous because Madeline Lengel famously was asked if it met her expectations, and she said it absolutely did. I expected it to be bad. It was really bad. Yeah. <laughs> it was really awful. <laughs> Terrible child acting. However, a little entertaining for that very reason. Okay. Uh, so uh, uh, we're going to do some recommendations now. Why don't we start over with Gene, and then we'll finish with Parker. Okay. Um, I, I know you've done a show on college basketball this week, as I do listen, mm -hmm. um, and uh, I know that the demographic – does not necessarily carry a big basketball following. But nevertheless, I have two basketball-related uh, recommendations. Uh, one is called Simply Basketball. It's a collection of nonfiction published by the Library of America. It just came out. It's edited by, I think, an acquaintance of yours, Alexander Wolf. Uh, oh, we, we've had Alex. Uh, yeah. Wolf. I don't know if I yeah. could call him an acquaintance or not, but he was on a show we right. did about, uh, about Obama's right, relationship right. to basketball. And he gathers together all these excerpts, essays, reportage, what have you, about basketball. And the writers range from somebody, uh, a fairly good friend of yours, Roy Blunt Jr., mm -hmm. to a fairly good friend of mine, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Uh, <laughs> go, we go to the same jazz clubs. I keep missing him, you know, that yeah. kind of thing. Anyway, it's, it's an interesting book, and I, I got a lot out of it, so that's, that's one reason. The second recommendation 
is a TV show called The Jump. Um, it's on every day at 3 o'clock on ESPN. And it's basically a panel discussion of, the, of professional basketball. Now, I know that may sound narrow to you, but there is something nonetheless very intelligent, very civilized, and very, very smart about, um, very, you know, very, very savvy about this program. And I think it comes from the fact that it's hosted by Rachel Nichols, who is a veteran of the sports media wars. Um, she, she basically starts off each show with this really funny, wry, thoroughly reported essay about whatever is happening in the National Basketball Association uh, that night or before about a game or some bit of gossip or whatever. She magnifies into this very funny, perfectly shaped essay about which the guests in the studio, some of which are other journalists, some of which are former players, who, and she brings out the best of these guests. She asks really good questions and gives them a lot of room to talk. And I keep thinking, why aren't all panel shows like this? Not just sports panels where everybody tries to outshout each other. Like but the nose. Why isn't the nose, nose more well, like yeah, I was just going to see. See, you're doing it. <laughs> see, I stepped on Jim's line. I just did the thing <laughs> oh, that you're talking about. But, but, it, but it's, called, it's called The Jump. Uh, I recommend it highly. It, it's, been, it's been one of the things that keeps me sane in the media universe. All right. Jim Joplin, what have you got? Okay, my little uh, invocation uh, materials to stay away from the news. Anything uh, Julian Lodge, the great guitarist who is sort of taken the Jim Hall route. Um, is it, I just really find him to be inspiring. He's a young guy who was taking lessons from Pat Metheny when he was 10 and was playing with Santana when he was 11. And, and uh, So go on YouTube or buy his How records. do you spell his last name? L-A-G-E. Okay. Julian Lodge. He was playing with Gary Burton when he was 19. Mm-hmm. And Gary Burton really cherry-picks great guitar players. There's two Jim so, Halls, a jazz guitarist player and then the guy who ran for Congress. Which yeah, was. well, he definitely uh, has stolen his chops from the congressman. The congressman. Yeah. Oh. No, no, he, he's a Jim Hall guy. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and a little, little thing for my friend Sarah Raskin, uh, who runs, I think she runs it, but she's certainly integral to the Brain Injury Alliance, uh, and they're doing a, a pond house benefit on uh, April 26th, featuring your friends and mine, the Shinolas. Oh, right. Uh, at 6.30. That is Jim's Shinolas. amazing, great band. Yeah. Uh, Parker Who, what have you got for us? I would like to recommend the Thronestone Theater Company, an up-and-coming new uh, theater company in Ridgefield. I was first introduced to them because I played for one of their um, post, post-show parties and uh, they put on really contemporary new plays, and what part of their mission is actually to emphasize new and underrepresented work. And I, I went to see the play, which was Milk, and it was very well done, very interesting, and uh, definitely uh, out of the box. And I think that it's a really great thing, especially for people who are interested in theater, but not, not necessarily just want to see the same old plays that get put on at local uh, playhouses over and over, so they're constantly looking for new work that's different and interesting, um, and they've got a great lineup for this coming season. Is it all one word, Thronestone? Throne st- two words, Thronestone Theatre Company. All right, and they're in Ridgefield. Ridgefield, that's right. All right, so, um, so I wasn't going to mention this, but since uh, Gene is bringing up basketball, I, first of all, I want to make a confession, a public confession, so that on Wednesday uh, in our annual uh, Bill Curry and Julia Pastel March Madness show, I announced, I'm sure no one paid attention except me, but I announced uh, that if I had to make a prediction uh, that Arizona was going to win the whole thing, uh, and I was basing that in particular on having watched uh, a highlight reel of DeAndre Ayton, uh, their freshman star, who I thought 
pretty much, in terms of his effect on opponents, strongly resembled the kaiju, which are the monsters in Pacific Rim who come out of the uh, vent in the ocean floor and terrorize humankind. Uh, last night, he was completely... <laughs> completely rendered ineffectual uh, and a very spunky Buffalo team uh, beat Arizona. And, uh, Wait, Buffalo was, beat him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's like a 13-4 oh upset or something. So wow. Gene was, has that T-vote. Right. Uh, it was, it was uh, a really yeah, a tremendous so. game. And I will say also, yeah, I'm sorry to wreck it for you if you did that. But um, uh, also yesterday, right before going to see a wrinkle in time, I had a few minutes. I sat down on the couch. I turned on the Loyola-Chicago versus Miami game, uh, caught the last five minutes on the clock, and got so worked up by it. I have my dog, our dog is like 75% deaf, and I still yelled loud enough so that he left the room. Um, so you know you yelled pretty loud if the dog is bothered by that at all. Uh, the thing that I want to recommend, I was trying, I, actually, I didn't have to think very hard about a movie or TV series that features a plucky female lead. Uh, there's something on Netflix right now called Collateral. It stars Carrie Mulligan. But Carrie Mulligan, like, has, you have not seen her before. She's playing a very different kind of character, at least than I've ever seen her play. She plays a former athlete who's now a police detective uh, in England. Uh, but the, the series, which is written by the great playwright David Hare, uh, is very much the work of a playwright. You can kind of feel that uh, in terms of the way the dialogue is. And he gets into really interesting questions about immigration policy in particular. I mean, it's a murder mystery, but it's a murder mystery with a lot of political overtones. One of the characters is an MP, a very liberal MP, and, and immigration is, is running through this four-episode series in a really interesting way. So once again, uh, the series is called Collateral. Uh, watch it, especially for the performance by Carrie Mulligan as the lead, uh, a very plucky heroine indeed. Uh, thanks very much to Gene Seymour and to Jim Chapdelain and to Parker Who, Ms. Who, if you're nasty, but not Mrs. Who. That's a different Who. Uh, all right. Uh, we'll be back on Monday with The Scramble.